I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was the scoop that brought down a president. I shall leave this office with regret at not completing my term, but with gratitude for the privilege of serving as your president for the past five and a half years. In 1972, the Washington Post assigned two young journalists, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, to investigate a break-in at the Democratic National Committee offices. Their tenacious reporting uncovered the Nixon administration's involvement in the Watergate scandal and rewrote the course of American history. The story turned the men behind the pen into the most famous bylines in the world. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking how to make the news. My guest is one half of that journalistic double act. Carl Bernstein was just 28 years old when he broke Watergate. There's always been some chicanery in American politics. You're always going to have some underhanded dealings. Nothing comparable to this. What, what happened here is an, an incumbent administration set out to, to manipulate the internal politics of, of the opposition. A year later, his investigations had won him a Pulitzer Prize and a position on the celebrity circuit. The newsmaker became the talk of the town himself after his marriage and breakup with the late writer Nora Ephron. Their story was brought to page and movie screen by Ephron from her novel Heartburn, starring Jack Nicholson as a fictionalised Bernstein. Do you love her? I, I can't do this. Can't do this right now. But Bernstein's own story begins in 1960 as a 16-year-old copyboy for the local newspaper, The Washington Star, where he earned his writing stripes covering the civil rights movement and the Kennedy presidency. He recalls those formative years in his memoir, Chasing History. What does he make of the way the ruffled trade of news has changed? Carl Bernstein, welcome to The Economist Asks. Good to be with you. Your new book is called Chasing History, A Kid in the Newsroom, and you really were a kid. You were 16 when you walked into the Washington Star, the city's then daily afternoon newspaper. Describe that moment for me. I had just been interviewed by the production editor of the paper for the possibility of getting a job as a copy boy, which is the lowest rung on the ladder in which you pretty much do everything in the way of errands. And the man who interviewed me from his office was a door that opened onto the newsroom, and he opened it and took me into the newsroom, and I saw the most purposeful commotion. It was incredible. It was like the most stunning moment of my life. There were people yelling copy. There were bells going off from the wire room, and this production editor led me down the center aisle of the newsroom with reporters' desks on either side, and I was like a a puppy on a leash. And this production editor pulled a copy of the newspaper 
and it had just been printed, and I could feel the rumble of the presses underneath, handed me a copy from the stack of papers, and it was still warm from being printed. And, and I looked around at this magnificent scene around me, behind me, to the sides of me, and I said in that moment to myself, I want to be a newspaper man. I do identify exactly what you say when I stepped into a newsroom. I thought, well, that's it. You know, I'm going to spend my, my life around news media. And here we are. Here we are. We can't get out, can we? <laughs> or possibly we're no good for anything else, but we just can't get out of news media. But it is a memoir. And I do wonder as someone who spent their career observing and writing about others, including the most powerful people in America and beyond, what it feels like to turn the tables round, write your own story. Are you really as rigorous with yourself as you would be with others? I hope so. And I think I have been. But let's talk for a moment about what this book is. It only covers the years 1960 to 65. During my five years there, I went to almost all of Kennedy's press conferences. I covered the assassination. I covered civil rights. So what this kid gets and realizes it in his first weeks into paper is that, oh, he has the best seat in the country. What amazed me in the writing of it was all of a sudden, even though it covers only the period 60 to 65, about both journalism, what's happening in America, the resonance goes to today what's happening in journalism and what's happening in America. During your career, the newsroom of those clattering typewriters was transformed by digital technology. So I wondered if that shift had altered what you call the quest for the truth in all its complexity. Truth in all its complexity is, is a phrase I learned from the great people who I worked with as a kid, as an apprentice. And it was their, their biblical mission to do and obtain the best and Woodward and I came to make a variation of the term. We called it the best obtainable version of the truth. The technology, they're tools. They're fabulous tools. We can do our work much faster with Google. We can find instantaneously a biography of a person we're about to go out and talk to. But we need to go out and talk to them. And what's not happening since all of these technological tools have become available is Fewer and fewer reporters and news organizations are going out and talking to the sources. They're on their cell phones. They're going to Google. They're writing their stories. Now, is that the norm? No. But are a disproportionate number of so-called reporters doing that? I'd ask you the same question in the UK, but certainly here, yes. The newspaper industry is firefighting on a lot of fronts, fall in advertising revenues, faster story turnover in digital news, competition from rolling TV news and social media. Given the time and resources that went into Watergate, and you did over 200 stories on it, can investigations of that scale and depth happen now in, in the face of all these new demands? This technologically advanced new universe is altogether new. The core of it still is a human enterprise. And all I'm saying is that if we abandon that human enterprise of reporting, then we lose the fundament of what it is we ought to be doing. There is so much great investigative reporting going on 
all over the world. Look at the people who have braved murder, terror in Russia. Look at the coverage of the Trump presidency, the greatest reporting on a presidency by the largest number of news organizations in my lifetime. The so-called Panama Papers, which the story ran in, in the UK as well as the United States. So there is no dearth of great reporting. What we need is commitment to it by our news organizations. Where do local newspapers, news organizations fit into this? When you were at the Star, it was owned by prominent local families. That was often uh, the ownership model, in some ways a little bit feudal, actually. But today, much more likely hedge funds, private equity firms will have control or at least a very large say, I think, in around half of US daily newspapers. Well, critics would say these are, in the end, money makers. They don't have a big civic obligation, although some of them may, may say they have some. Others say, well, it's better to have a hedge fund ownership than a closed local paper. Who's right? You just enunciated something that's the first time I would say I'd rather have feudalism in my life because these families were dedicated in their way to their communities as well. And so what you had certainly in America, and I think you had it across Great Britain as well, is you had newspapers in small towns and big cities as well that helped keep together the social fabric and the social compact of the people in a town or a region. In America, what happened is that, and it's before the internet, big chains started buying up these papers. And many of them were two newspaper towns. And this is the 1980s we're talking about, in the 1990s. And incidentally, these newspapers into the 21st century, many of them were earning 15 and 20%. Average earnings in the newspaper business, as I recall in this country, was still something like 19% per year. Why were the profits so high so long, even after the internet? Because these chains came in, they bought these papers, they stripped them of their editorial content, of their repertorial content, fired a lot of the reporters, gave them buyouts. These weren't really newspapers anymore. And then with the internet, they started to go under. So we lost about half of them. I understand that. And I miss some local newspapers, some, frankly, went to the wall and I didn't really miss. You describe them as the glue that held a lot of communities together. And I'm sure in many ways that was right. But time moves on and, and people weren't reading them and people were getting information from elsewhere. Maybe they weren't getting it, but they were not likely to want to sort of pick up the newspaper in the local store. To what extent do we have to accept that people, move, they, they vote with their feet when it comes to consuming news or just deciding it's not so relevant anymore? In the smaller towns, I'm not sure that what you're saying is, is right. They vote with their feet. What happened was they didn't have the opportunity anymore to read these local papers that covered their community. I think we need to look at media and particularly newspaper and news in, in America, but also in, in other countries in the West. We need to start thinking of our politics and our media, not separate entities, but as part of a larger culture. Up to a point, here's a question where we might have a slightly different at least a different angle on it. If you look at the Build Back Better bill, which originally included a billion dollar tax subsidy proposed to support local journalism. It's stalled, as, as you know, in the Senate and President Biden says state governments should take 
more action. So the idea that governments will step in to save local news. Wow. I mean, you know, I, I wonder if I'd said that to you when you were out there as a, a hungry and rather ruthless newspaper man. The idea that governments, you know, isn't that like letting the cat into the hen house to have governments basically in the background providing the support structure for newspapers? Uh, I think it's a slippery slope. I would not be for anything that would allow even the possibility of government interference or influence in the news gathering process. What do we make of the trust question? It comes up very regularly. The Economist reported on the decline in trust in media in the US last year, saying under 30% of Americans now claim to trust news most of the time. At the same time, isn't it true that what's chipped away at that is this sense of division, that sense that the media are not impartial about news. We know they're not impartial about comment, but they're not impartial about news. So, you know, which came first there, the chicken, the egg? I think that's what's really happening here. It is a chicken and egg situation because the reality is we have a tendency to look at news and media and our politics as separate entities from the larger culture. And there has been a huge cultural shift going on in America for 30, 35 years. And Donald Trump very much was able to and understood, I think, how to exploit this cultural shift that had been going on for so long. And we're still wed to this idea that we're separate in the media from this cultural shift. And it's not just a political shift. It's about basic identity. We've had a cold civil war in America for a good while before Trump. Trump ignited that cold civil war. We are past the point of ignition now. We are simmering, burning, however you want to put it. To go to your question, in large measure, one, there's always been shoot the messenger. In the beginning of Watergate, we became, Woodward, myself, Ben Bradley, the editor of the Post, became the issue. Not the conduct of the president, but we did because the White House was very successful for a good while in making our conduct the issue. When you say it's ignited by Donald Trump, I'm sure that is very, very largely true. But we have also seen that, I'm talking in the US context here, is that news organisations often then find that it actually is a good commercial decision to sort of double down on a particular way of treating every subject because they realize they've got a captive audience who loves Donald Trump on the one hand, Fox News and uh, and allies, or absolutely hates him and doesn't really want to hear you know anything that might balance anything out about conservatism. So I worry in a way that the truth does go down the middle on some subjects. I think reporting is the most subjective of acts. And the reporter and editor decide what is news. So you give the example of Fox that has virtually no interest in real news in the best obtainable version of truth, that was founded and existed largely for an ideological purpose that would generate profit. So it's not a real news organization. Yes, there is a problem in a number of places that call themselves news organizations of bleeding opinion into the news columns or into the air as news. But by and large, I don't think that that's the case, that they're so identifiable, the ones you're referring to, as 
quasi at best news organizations that really uh, exist for the purpose of ideology as opposed to the best obtainable version of the truth. And, and so the biggest change in media in many regards is we now have consumers who are not interested in the truth, but rather are seeking information to buttress and make more fundamental their already held beliefs. Do you not sometimes think you're in a, a liberal echo chamber too? Are there not aspects of that that get a bit annoying when you kind of know which stories, which angles may well feature beyond page one? Because it's comfortable. It's too comfortable for the readers, for the consumers just to be, it almost seems like that's the equivalent of the problem that you put your finger on with Fox News and with the Trump penumbra. It can feel a bit, narrow and it can feel a bit smug. I don't think, incidentally, that there is any equivalency on, on the left and right in terms of major media organizations. The disproportion on the right here is, is very great, particularly because of Fox News and a few other organizations. But is there a problem, for instance, of back to this question of what is news, that most important news organizations have a notion of what is news that has bent ideologically toward the agenda of what might be called left, center left. Yes, I think it exists and, and I think it's a problem. But is there space in the middle? Or, I mean, for some people think that's even the stupid question, but it seems to me if there's nothing that you can ever find on some, if not all issues, you can't be in the middle of an argument that says, well, racism might be okay, because that's not that's not an acceptable position. But what you do about it might also have very differing views across the political spectrum. What we're calling so-called woke culture is hardly simply the assertion by the right wing about the extent and power of, quote, woke culture. Some of wokeness may or may not be, to your view or mine, perfectly reasonable, and some of it might be, to your view or other people's and mine, as wretched excess. These are questions that need to be debated and need to be covered, but covered as news and, and not as an agenda that is committed to one of these points of view. So what, what are you? Are you woke? I'm a reporter. But I, I think this idea, though, that the middle or centrist is a desirable objective of news organizations, I don't think that has much to do with the best obtainable version of the truth. Here, you tell me this. I, of course, go out with a preconceived notion or the preconceived notion of what the story might be. Almost never has that story turned out to be what my preconceived notion is after I've done the reporting. Look at Watergate. I said to Woodward, the second day we're covering a story, I said, you know, and I did a long memo about it for the, for the editor. I said, I think, and here's why, this is probably a CIA operation. Couldn't be more wrong. By the third day, I thought, okay, this might well go to the White House. So the idea of centrism as a desired result of reporting, I think, is antithetical to the best obtainable version of the truth. And what I say in this book is the truth is not neutral. How did I learn that? I learned it at the star covering civil rights. And, and watching great reporters, actually, who were born and raised in the South in segregation. And they watched 
these lynchings. My first assignment as a reporter at the Star was to go and interview, as she came to Washington, a woman named Rita Schwerner. While the authorities in Mississippi were looking for the bodies of her husband and two other civil rights workers named Cheney and Goodman. And their bodies were found under a levee in Mississippi. There is nothing neutral about the truth. Here is a misconception I think that many people have about news, that we have a, a duty to play things 50-50 down the middle. I think it's nonsense. Can I bring you back to Watergate? Your name, of course, is synonymous with that famous investigation. It was a turning point in American politics and in public trust in the government. What's fundamentally changed when you look across those 50 years? Could a Watergate happen now or do other things happen which are just as bad, even worse, but are fundamentally different? The Trump experience is fundamentally different than the Nixon administration and the Nixon experience and far, far worse than Watergate. Let's look at the reason why. The reason is the Republican Party. One of our two political parties has been taken over by forces inimical to truth, who have followed blindly an authoritarian president, the first seditious president in the history of the United States. Never been anything like it. And the Republican Party has made this possible. They have acquitted him twice after he's been impeached. So what happened in Watergate? Courageous Republicans overwhelmed their own sense of party to ensure that truth and democracy was served. Richard Nixon knew he had to resign. And so you have a peaceful transition of power. You have no attempt at a coup by Richard Nixon. That's the difference. Let me ask you a, a personal question, and it is talking about uh, actually ending up featuring in the very famous film Heartburn about the breakdown of your marriage to uh, the late great writer Nora Ephron. Characters being played by Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson. What was that like? A terrible period of my life. And, and I was responsible for the breakup of my marriage. And eventually we moved on, both Nora and me. We have two great kids. One is a reporter, Jacob, for the New York Times, a great reporter at Style Section of the Times. Our other son is a great musician. He's a guitar player for Taylor Swift and Miley Cyrus. Uh, <laughs> I'm a former rock critic. <laughs> so I get to be a really lucky dad with, with one, one kid at the Times and one kid wearing spandex and playing a guitar in stadiums around the world. So it works out, doesn't it? You know, family sagas work out. It was a very rough period in my life. People go through rough periods. And look, I've had a big life. I understand that. And, and an amazing life. But it's had ups and downs. There have been things I've handled badly. But you keep going. You persevere. You, you look at yourself, hopefully. Did you pour yourself a very large drink before watching the movie? I only watched the movie once. And, and I actually took legal action because I, I thought the movie could be harmful to the kids in some way. And so a part of, of the divorce settlement uh, from Nora that she signed and the Paramount picture signed and that Mike Nichols, the director, signed was that the father portrayed could not ever be portrayed as a bad 
father without putting the interests of his kids. And I had, uh, was guaranteed in the agreement to see each iteration of the script. And, and so I think the portrayal by Nicholson is, is a little bit perhaps slanted that way. And I think uh, whatever the case, uh, it's part of my life. And the last thing I want to do is, is minimize what that part of, of my life was. But I also see it in the context of this full, amazing life that, that I've had. The first and most joyous time of my life in many regards. Watergate is obviously one, uh, but the most joyous really, and one of the reasons I wanted to go back to it in this book was my apprenticeship in the newspaper business. The five years I spent there are not only in many ways the most formative in my life, they're also formative in this country's life, 1960 to 65, the Vietnam years, the beginning of the Lyndon Johnson years, the cultural shift in America, civil rights, etc., etc. So that's what this book is about. And it's about this joyous experience, this kid that at age 16 gets the best seat in the country. This is not a book about nostalgia. It, it resonates with today. But nonetheless, it describes this joyous experience of this kid. Carl Bernstein. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Great to be with you. And we'd love to know what you think of the debate I had there with Carl. Is government intervention the answer to sustaining local newspapers or does it have its own hidden risks? Write to us at podcasteconomist.com or you can tweet us in this brave new podcast era at Economist Pods. And on our website, you'll find The Economist review of Carl Bernstein's memoir, Chasing History. Carl was extolling the virtues of the newspaper, and I'm going to do the same because each week our team delivers great analysis and insight from around the world and some surprising and colourful tales along the way. So why not subscribe to us today? For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.